What a day. Welcome July 4th, Grace Point Church. If it's your first time with us today, thank you for being a part on this day. Uh, again, a day that we mark as a nation, uh, the beginning uh, of a new beginning for, for, for many people uh, years and years and years ago. And, I, and as you look back at our history, I always enjoy looking back at some of those who had that perspective and that values of, of a Christian faith, a Christian ethic, even if many of them or some of them did not ha- hold it dear to their heart, at least in an ethical point of view, in a moral point of view, there was a fabric of morality that something tied back to Scripture. And I say that because, you know, we were not a Christian nation. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. Nations aren't Christians. People are Christians or they're not. And so there's, there's again, there's a lot of debate in that in our world today. But uh, neither was it a Christian utopia. There are great founding fathers who sacrificed dearly. One of those, ben, Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the first ambassadors of our, of our land, and, and yet he studied and printed the messages that George Whitfield would preach when he came over in the mid-1700s and was heavily influenced and heard the gospel preached by one of the greatest evangelists of that day, George Whitfield, and yet he never professed faith in Jesus. Thomas Jefferson, uh, when you look at the history of our land, our third president, the one who said this, and it was quoted in that video, the God, the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time. While he authored our Declaration of Independence, he was also, listen to this, destroying our Bible. Now that may be news to you, and I'm not trying to throw him under the bus. It was just literally his faith that, that though he believed in the independence of the country and though he believed in a benevolent God, he did not believe in a miraculous God. He did not believe that Jesus was divine. He did not believe in the miracles of Jesus. This was not how he was raised. He was a child of his own upbringing. He was a child of enlightenment period. That was not what his dad wanted. He was born to Peter and Jane Jefferson. Peter was a self-taught person who lived on a plantation, and he wanted his son to get a proper education. So, because his dad, Peter Jefferson, had a deep religious faith in the Presbyterian and Anglican backgrounds, it was believed that he was the one who said, I want my son to have my faith. And he enrolled him into a school where he was taught by a Scottish Presbyterian minister. So he is taught by him. And I would, I would say that there's little doubt in my mind when I look at Peter Jefferson and Jane Jefferson that they were probably sitting in the seat that I'm sitting in right now. But when I think about Thomas Jefferson, he was probably not sitting in that seat. He was most likely sitting in this seat. This is that seat where, again, he believes the religious things of God. He believes in the goodness of God. He does not believe in the Trinity. He does not believe uh, in the miracles. He has questions about the resurrection and the atonement and the original sin. He actually took the Bible that you and I have and he deconstructed it. That's why we said he was destroying our Bible, pulling out pieces of our Bible that pointed to the divinity of Jesus. But not only that it was in Peter was sitting in this chair and Thomas was sitting in this chair, but 
But, but Thomas had the opinion that it was immoral and unethical to give a Bible to a child. He did not believe you should corrupt a child's mind with the Bible. That's one of the reasons he extracted so much from the Bible. And so I would say maybe the generation following him, though I could find nothing on his children at all. I could find nothing, and maybe you can help me with that. But I would have to say if he carried that frame of reference into his parenting, that his children were no doubt sitting in this chair right here. These chairs represent where we're all in the faith. Every one of us in this room and everyone watching online today is sitting in one of these three chairs. You'll have to discern where you are. You'll have to discern where your children are. Because the reality is that we are all sitting in one of these chairs. Abraham, find your Bibles and and find uh, the book of Genesis chapter 24. We've been in Genesis now for a while, and we're going to be studying the life of Abraham, finishing him up here today, and that's two times that I've said Abraham. So if you're a kid in the room and you're keeping count of the number of times that I say Abraham, then that's the third time, by the way, then please tally them up and tell me how many times I say it uh, and meet me out in the gallery afterwards. Over, I'll be by the cupcakes. Uh, meet me over by the cupcakes and, uh, and tell me how many times I say Abraham. Okay, that's four. So keep it a little tally all along. Also, take the back of your worship guide. Kids, you can do this. Adults, too, if you want to. Uh, Take the back. And I want you to draw these three stools, okay? And I want you to label these stools as you learn about these stools. What do you learn about these different seats of the faith that people are living in? Whenever I think about Abraham, Abraham was living uh, in a day that uh, he was uh, following the Lord's will, following his calling into his life, into a land that he would show him, and he took with him his nephew Lot. Lot grew up in a chair much like this right here. But Lot was, whenever he was given the opportunity to make choices for himself, he started looking toward the land far off, a land called Sodom and Gomorrah. He not only looked in that direction, but he moved in that direction. And not only did he move in that direction, he became a part of the city council, if you will, in that city. Now, I tell you, whenever Abraham is looking at Lot, he has to be thinking of, I don't want my children to be like that. To where they look and then they linger and then they live in the midst of all the degradation of Sodom and Gomorrah. And some people have asked, why didn't you speak more on Sodom and Gomorrah and all the ill and all the vile of Sodom and Gomorrah? And here's the reality. Sodom and Gomorrah were acting like people far from God. And people far from God act like they do in Sodom and Gomorrah. That troubles me when I see a Sodom and Gomorrah out there. But you know what disgusts me? Is when I see people like a lot. Someone who's known and has experienced and has walked in and has, has been taught and has heard the voice of God, and yet somehow they minger, move themselves out of that relationship and they just grow cold in their faith and they move as far away from that as they possibly can be. That disgusts me. That troubles me more than whenever I look at Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's a time whenever we're going to be in in Genesis 24 where we're going to find one of the most intentional moments in Abram's life as a parent. Now, parents, listen up. 
Be intentional parents. Be parents on purpose, not parents on accident. Even if the kid came by accident, you be a parent on purpose. Be a parent on purpose and have an intentional plan about where you're hoping your child to be. Where are you wanting your child to set in life? Because that will determine how you parent in life. If you will set those standards now, and exactly what Abraham does is he sets a standard and he wants to prepare his son Isaac to to go out on his own and to live out on his own. And how he does that is he calls together his chief of staff, Eliezer from Damascus. He calls him and he says, I want you to go out and I want you to find for me, for my son, a wife. Yes, it was an arranged marriage. And you think, man, I don't want anything to do with that arranged marriage stuff. But now think about it. We watch Bachelor and Bachelorette for entertainment. We allow the algorithms of a computer program system somewhere else to decide who we're going to see in a profile, to decide if we're going to swipe left or swipe right, to decide who we're going to date the next date. Listen, I'll take Abraham, a loving father, commissioning his, uh, his chief of staff to go out and find me a spouse any day of the week over some algorithm. So here he is, he is, sends his, his, his chief of staff out, and let's pick it up in chapter 24, verse 1 and following. Now, Abraham was old. Isn't it nice to be called that? Well advanced in years. He was 140 years old, if you're counting, by the way. He lives another 35 years. Clearly, he doesn't know he, how much longer he's going to live, but he's 140 at this point in chapter 42. And the Lord has blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of of his household, who had charge over all that he had, put your hand on my, under my thigh. Now, let me just say this. If you come up behind me today and you put your hand under my thigh, you might get something back. My hand. And not under your thigh, across your face. Um, But there's something that happens in this culture and in this time where that is how you swear your allegiance, if you will. It happens later on in Genesis whenever Joseph uh, makes uh, makes the promise to his father that he will not leave his body, his bones in in Egypt, but he will take him back to Israel. This was a Canaanite custom, excuse me, this was a a Hittite custom of that day. And so as, as you look back at it, it's much like what we would do is we would put our hands over our our hearts, or we put our right hand on our Bible. But what, what is that? Putting your hand under somebody's hand, that's a very vulnerable position. It's a very personal position. You're definitely in my space whenever you put your hand under my thigh. But he tells him, I want you to put your hand under my thigh. And then he says in verse 3, that, I may, that, you, that you may swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son. From the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. See, he had lived with the Canaanites. He had remembered back in Genesis chapter 9 when the Canaanites were kind of a cursed people in that time. And they had lived out their curse. They had lived it out in an immoral way, in a, in a way that was ungodly, in a way that, that they, they, they believed in idol worship. And, and that's the kind of way. And what Abram says, listen, I want you to swear. I want you to cross your heart. Hope that I stick a needle in your eye. I want you to put your hand on the Bible. I want you to put your hand on your heart. I want you to put your hand on my thigh. I don't care what you put it on, but here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to promise you're not going to get a a wife for my son from the Canaanites. 
Go back to the land that I came from and bring somebody back from there. And that's exactly what he does. Whenever I look back at the story and I look back at uh, uh, the life of, uh, uh, of Peter Jefferson, Peter Jefferson is in this chair. And Thomas Jefferson is in this chair. And his children are probably in this chair. When I look at Abraham, Abraham was most certainly in this chair. And I want to talk about that in a moment. But I want you to see here the intentionality behind parent Abraham. It's a life principle that I want want you to jot down. Is that I must be mindful of my own faith and be intentional with the faith of the next generation. Abraham had to make sure he was in number, chair number one. And, and just like he had, was in chair number one, he wanted to make sure his son was in chair number one. And that chair number one was where he was going to be. And I love it when people own their own faith, but they also take their faith and they turn it around and they make sure their faith is intentionally dispensed into the next generation. A few weeks ago, we, had, we, we pointed out Vicki Thomas, who for 20 years now, has taught in our preschool ministry for 20 years. We tried to add up the number of students that she had come through her classroom in 20 years. And we counted at a conservative number of at least 500 of the next generation. Now that's incredible to me. And I love it of her intentionality. I want to challenge you. That if you do not have a place where you're pouring into the next generation, that you will right now say, I am going to make sure not only that that I'm sitting in chair number one, but I'm going to make sure the next generation behind me is sitting in chair number one. And the only way I can say to do that is to start pouring your life into the next generation. Pouring your faith into the next generation. It's what it says in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 12. He says, "For, uh, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. Basically, you're stuck down here somewhere in this position and you should be up here in this position teaching the next generation. If you're interested in that, then I would say this. Text in right now to GPC Connect, or excuse me, GPC Serve to 97000, and we'll start a conversation with you about that. But uh, am I making sure my faith is in this chair? Am I being very intentional? But am I also making sure the next generation's chair? That's exactly what Abraham was doing in, in Genesis chapter 24. He said, I want you to make sure, I want you to swear, I want you to pinky promise me, do whatever you got to do, get my, get my son a good wife. This is the hot-hearted, hot-hearted chair, if you want to label it. This is the lukewarm chair, and this is the cold chair. When you think about these chairs, which chair is your faith in? Let's look very carefully at a 15,000 foot, not 30, not, not ground level view of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob today as we're going to do a quick flyover of them over the next few weeks as we then come back in, the, in, in August and we'll talk about the life of Joseph and more to come on that. But let's talk about these three chairs. Let's talk about Abraham. Let's talk about Isaac. Let's talk about Jacob and let's figure out which chairs they're sitting in. First of all, I want to tell you this, that Abraham has already given it away, I believe, is in the first chair. 
He is in the first chair. The first chair is the hot-hearted chair. He's the one who's called the friend of God. He's the one who's called the prince of God. He's the one who connects with God. He is the one who carries the promise, the covenant of God. He has this incredible relationship with God. Is it perfect? By no means. We've just spent months talking about that. So go back and re-listen to that. But here's one thing I pointed out from the very beginning when you look at the life of Abraham, and you cannot miss it, that Abraham was very committed in this chair to making sure that God got the first and God got the best. And that's one of the ways you can question yourself and test yourself. Is God getting my first? Is God getting my best? Everywhere that Abraham went, you do the study in your own time. Every time Abraham stopped somewhere, every time Abraham set up camp, every time he put his tent underneath the the oak trees, he would always stop and he would build an altar. Look at these passages of Scripture. He did it in Shechem. He did it in Bethel. He did it in Ai. He did it in Abram. He did it in Moriah. He did it. Uh, he built an altar every time he had an opportunity to connect with God. Building an altar was a statement of, I'm giving God the first place in my life. I'm making a position, a place, a spot in my life for God. I'm going to give him my first. I'm going to give him my best. He's the person, Abraham's the person, if you remember back when we talked about Melchizedek, he's the person who gave the very first tithe before tithing was even tithing. He gave his first 10% to Melchizedek. This is before Moses wrote it in the law. This is how I know it's bigger than the Old Testament law. It is a complete biblical principle from the beginning of the Scriptures to the end of the Scriptures because Abram gave a tenth of everything. So we see when you look at the hot heart of Abraham that his priorities were set, his intentionality as a parent was set. He wanted to be the best parent. He wanted to see his kids in chair number one. He wanted to be in chair number one. He wanted to build an altar every time he could for God. He was in chair number one. He wasn't perfect, though. He had a problem with truth. He, yes, he lied a couple of times, and I think that that will come back to bite him. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to share a message called The Truth About Lies. And it's going to really unpack the lies, the generational sins that we're going to see in the life of Abraham that will go to the life of Isaac, that will go to the life of, uh, of Jacob, and how you will see generational sins that will start whenever he, you point back to the fact that he lied about his own wife two different times. But when you look at other people in the Bible, it's not just, Moses, it's not just uh, Abraham who had a hot heart for God. It's people like David. In fact, when God was looking for a king, he looked for a person not from the outside in. He looked at from the inside out. The Lord sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be the prince over his people. That is when God chose Abraham to be his king. That's when God chose David to be his king. Joshua is another person I look at, and I say Joshua is a person who had a hot heart for God. When everybody else, all the odds are against him, 10 people are saying, no, let's not go into the promised land. What is Caleb and Joshua doing? They're saying, yes, God can get us there. We can do this. They had a hot heart for God. They went against the flow. They went against the culture. They went against the majority, and they said, we can do this. And of course, in that situation, the majority won. They stayed in the, in the wilderness for the next 40 years. 
But I believe Joshua was clearly setting in chair number one. First chair number one, the people that are in the first chair, there are people in your life that you still look back on. They're heroes of your faith. You still look back. It could be a parent, could be an uncle, could be a granddad, could be a Sunday school teacher, could be somebody in your life along the way that poured into you, that made a difference in your life. To this day, you still gain inspiration. from. They may not be living anymore. The second chair. The second chair is the lukewarm chair. That's, it's warmer than this chair, where I believe most of the people are sitting. But this chair at least looks good. It looks religious. It has religious language. This chair will look to this chair and admire this chair and wish it was in that chair, but doesn't want to pay the price to get into that chair. That chair is too hot for them. That chair costs too much. They don't want to give God their first and their best. They want to hold on to it. They want to talk about it. They want to critique it. They want to, and here's the problem with this chair. Here, be very careful with this. There's little nuances that will trip you up. That will land you in this chair. It's the little nuances that if you're not careful, that it's not the wrong sometimes that you do. It's not the, that you didn't do the good thing. It's that you didn't do the best thing. When you look at the life of, of, of Isaac, again, did he follow his dad's footsteps? No. When every time that Abram stopped, he built an altar, but you don't see that in the life of Isaac. Look at this chart. Every time he stopped, he dug a well. He was a philanthropist. He made sure that there was water. Now, there was one time he did build an altar, but it was not a regular thing for him. Because what he did is he lived off of the faith of his father. In some of the same places that he dug a well was the same places that his father built an altar. So some would say, well, he didn't need to build an altar. He's okay. Let's hang on to that thought. Hot-hearted people are generous out of an act of worship. That's this person. Lukewarm-hearted people are generous out of a tax deduction. Lukewarm people give money to charity and to the church as long as it doesn't infringe on their standard of living. You want to understand more about lukewarm people? If you buy this book for one chapter and one chapter only, it will be worth the buy. Buy Crazy Love by Francis Chan and read just the chapter on lukewarm. It will, it will revolutionize what it means to be a lukewarm person. In fact, you might actually dangerously see yourself in the mirror when you read that chapter. I know I did when I read it for the first time. But God doesn't want us in this chair. In fact, in Revelations, it will actually say he'll vomit you out of his mouth. He so much despises this chair because it looks like this chair to that person, but it's not. It looks like a form of godliness, but it's not. Remember, David is in chair number one because he had a heart for God. It says in 1 Samuel that he sought the, uh, that, that God sought for a man after his own heart. And that notice also in 1 Kings 8 verse 17 that, that David had a heart for God because he wanted to leave a legacy. He wanted to build a temple. He wanted to build a house for God. He had a heart for God and wanted to build a house for God. And it wasn't just about building his house. But Solomon was in chair number two. Now, Solomon's a great guy. We got books of the Bible named after him. We, we got books of the Bible that we, 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 we live our lives off of. The problem with Solomon, though, is that, that Solomon 
had a heart for wisdom, but he also had a heart for women. And it's his heart for women that began to turn him away from God. Notice that, that, that when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart from other, after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Holy true. No, 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 no. It was what he was. He wasn't anymore in this chair. He was now in this chair. He started off so good. He started off. But it's the little nuances, again, I say. The little nuances that will put us in chair number two and we'll not even know it. It'll happen so subtly overnight. Joshua was in chair number one. But the elders were in chair number two, the generation that came behind him. When you look at Joshua and you find that Joshua, and this is in Judges chapter two, it says, and Joshua dismissed the people, okay? It means basically go home. The people of Israel went each to the inheritance to take possession of the land. So go home now, build your homes, plant your gardens, establish your lives. God has given us the promised land. That is a beautiful moment in, in, in time. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Chair number one. And all the elders outlived Joshua. So Joshua dies. And now the elders are outliving him. Who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Here's what the little nuance is. They weren't experiencing the great work of God. They had only seen the great work of God. See, and you got to get this down, and this is worth you getting out of bed and coming here today. Second chair faith is second hand faith. It's like I can look over there and be inspired by that person and the way they're living in the, in the church and what God's doing. And, and I can be inspired by their going and their giving and their serving. And I can be inspired by them. But that's not going to change me. But I'm going to look over there. I'm going to get as close to them as I can. So hopefully it'll rub off. But I won't have to do it. See, I don't need to go when others are going. This is what we, what we say in our minds. Subconsciously, we say it in our heart. I don't need to go when other people are going. I'm here. I'm local. I don't need to serve because if I just wait long enough, all those positions will be filled and they won't need me. I don't need to give. Someone else will make the sacrifice. Remember, Isaac didn't build any altars, just one. He just dug wells. I don't need to pray. I'll just call the church and they'll pray for me. See, I, I don't have the solution, but I can point out the problems. Second chair faith is secondhand faith. The third chair. Sadly, there's a lot of people in the third chair. In fact, I would look across our land, across our Christian nation, and where we had a lot of people maybe started our country here in this chair. Somehow over time we moved to this chair and I will say that across our land statistically we are in this chair. And the problem is that this chair is critical of that chair, is critical of that chair, or at least admires that chair and is critical of the hypocrisy in that chair. And so this chair sits over here. Abraham built altars, remember that. Isaac dug wells. What did Jacob do? He tore down idols. Because idol, idolatry had entered into the land. 
Idolatry had come in, and gone were the, were, the, were the altars of Yahweh. Now what comes in are the altars to the pagan gods of the Canaanites and the other lands. What happens is the very place where God was once worshipped, now they're worshipping idols. And what now what, 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 what's left for Jacob is he's going to have to tear down the idols before they can worship God. Go to me to chapter 35, verse 1 to 4. It says, and said, God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. Remember, that's one of the places, that's one of the first places that, that, uh, that Abram built an altar. And dwell there. Make an altar to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, everyone's listening. What's he going to say? Let's go build an altar. No, what's he going to say? The first thing he's going to put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. What they had done is they had traded a hot heart for God, for a lukewarm heart for God, for idolatry, godless heart. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me. And to the day of my distress has been uh, uh, with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings and the, notice all the instruments, all the paraphernalia. They're giving all the idle stuff over. And what does Jacob do? Jacob hid them underneath a tenement tree uh, uh, near Shechem, another place where an altar of God once was. Jacob, the son of Isaac, Isaac, the son of Abraham, had different faiths, but they were from the same family. If we don't watch out for our own faith, we will easily creep through the little nuances of compromise down the line. And the next generation will follow in suit. Where did they get these idols from? Again, I skipped over a lot. I said we're doing about a 15,000-foot flyover of Genesis today, chapter 31, verse 19. When Laban has gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Basically, the wife brought him in from the foreign land. Brought him in so that they would worship them. Listen, we are living, that was a day of paganism. We are living in a day of pluralism. Well, there are many gods in many ways to God. Paganism is a form of pluralism. There are many ways to God. And that's exactly what this world is believing more and more and more. We are a morally confused and spiritually confused land. Where no longer do we have truth, you have your truth, and I have my truth. And there's a deep down problem with that, that I want us to understand that there is only one truth. We may not agree on the truth, but there is only one truth, and we've got to arrive at that truth. And, but in this day, you'll hear people say this, hey, but my truth and your truth, that's a problem with that. That's a part of the paganism and the pluralism of our day. Here's a life principle for you. People are entitled to their own beliefs, but not their own truth. There is only one truth. Will we know the truth? 
Well, we said it, well, it said it's free. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And I'm afraid in our day and age, we would rather sit in this chair and call it what we want to call it than to live out that chair. A book that I am reading, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, says, Our social imaginaries, the way in which we envision and imagine our world as Christians, are often too little different from that of the culture that surrounds us. What's he saying? We, sitting in this chair calling ourselves Christians, living a life of Jacob, which by the way means deceiver, living that life right there, we don't look much different than the world who does not profess Jesus. If you're in this chair, my friends, if you're here today, I want you to hear compassion and love and a call out of this chair. Because this is not the chair that you want to be in, that you wanted your children to see you in. Because this chair is a dark chair, is a cold chair, is a chair that will not produce godliness in the next generation. You don't want to even be in this chair because this is the chair that God wants to vomit out of his mouth. You want to be in this chair. And what's it going to take to get there? Because when you look over the generations and you see David was in this chair, what did he do? He made a kingdom. What did, what did Solomon do in this chair? He grew the kingdom. Grew it in wealth and prosperity and fame in so many ways. But Rehoboam, he divided the kingdom. You see the digression? Joshua sat in this chair and he was devoted to the work of God even if he was in the minority. He was devoted to the Lord. The elders sat in this chair and what did they do? They lived out a second-hand faith. The second chair faith is a second hand faith. The third chair, this is the generation that didn't know God. I didn't read all the verse to you. Judges chapter 2, verses 8 eight and 10. It says this, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And the generation that were gathered to their fathers and those who rose after another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel. Now that's sad that they forgot what God did for them. But what's even more sad is they didn't even know the Lord. There's no guarantee that I will stay in that chair. There's no guarantee that Caleb, my son over here, and Michaela, who's holding my grandson, will sit in that chair. But I pray to God that James and Selah, who are who can't, don't even... No, they know their name. They're, they're learning this kind of stuff. I hope to God they're sitting in this chair. I hope that I never move out of this chair because it can easily happen. Every one of us. See, the first chair, we say, yes, God. The second chair, we say, maybe, God. I want to weigh out all my options. I want to see what's best for me. I want to know what my truth is, and then I will maybe do it. If it's convenient and comfortable. If you don't ask too much of me, God, I'll do it. This chair, they say, what God? There is no God. There is no truth. The thing is, is that I want to close by this because it's so, so telling. 
Whenever you look at a city, a church, I mean, this could be Grace Point Church today, and you look at churches out there, you go to the, you go to the city of Ephesus, one of the greatest God workings in our Bible. There is probably more pages in ink devoted to the church at Ephesus in the New Testament than any other singular church in the New Testament. Challenge me on that, okay? Maybe Corinth, because they were just a hot mess from the get-go. But Ephesus wasn't. Paul started Ephesus. He spent three years there. He's, he trains up Timothy. Timothy takes over the pastorate there. He goes on to do greater works for God. It's a, a beautiful time. He spent more, Paul spent more time in Ephesus. How would you like Paul to be your founding pastor? Right behind is young Timothy, who's been trained by Paul, only to find out that years later, guess who moves to Ephesus? A guy by the name of the Apostle John. His name was an apostle, John. That was his title. His name was John. He was the apostle. He probably pastored regionally that area. He knew the church of Thyatira, Laodicea, Colossae. He knew all those churches in the area because he wrote to them when he was on the Isle of Patmos. And one of those churches that he wrote to was in was the church at Ephesus. You read it in Revelations. But whenever you read it in Revelations, you don't find the hot-hearted church that Paul started and Timothy pastored. You don't find that church. You find this church right here. When he says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, he said, Ephesus, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. You used to love me. You used to be hot-hearted. I used to be first and get your best. You've lost it. You've lost it. Come on, man. Fall in love with me again. But you've lost it. I wish today I could say that they moved back, but they didn't. In fact, if you go to Ephesus to this day, and I've been there multiple times, you'll not find a church. You'll not find, you'll find relics. You'll find ruins. You'll find museums. The most per capita unreached lost nation in the world, check Operation World Fact Check Me, is the country of Turkey where Ephesus resides. Listen, there's no guarantee that my generation is in this chair or I will stay in this chair unless I keep my first love. There's no, there's no guarantees that Caleb is going to stay or Jordan's going to stay or, 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 or any of our kids or grandkids are going to stay in that chair. But God forbid they're in this chair. And oh, to pray that my kids and my grandkids will know Jesus. That is my prayer. Here, here, here's the only thing I can connect it to. My first love. Have I lost my first love? Would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? I want you to answer that question right now. Which chair belongs to you? Which chair are you in right now? I'm afraid there are so, so many people 
in chair number two, wishing they were in chair number one, but not ready to pay that price of first and best. They're stuck with comfort and convenience. They've lost their first love. The only thing I can say to you is let the church at Ephesus be a testimony to every last one of us. If we don't regain our first love, the next generation will no longer walk with God. Father God, would you awaken us today that we would learn from the life of Abraham, that we'd be warned from the life of Isaac, that we would learn from the deceiver Jacob of what it means to have a hot heart for God and what it means to have a compromising heart or a cold heart. Or would you restore and renew our first love today? God, if there's anything right now any way right now, you're not first. You're not getting our best. Would you show, would you just in our hearts point that to us? Is it our time? Is it our talents? Is it our treasures? Is it, is it our relationships? Where in our country have we strayed? How can we, Lord, be people who will help bring revival to our land? Lord, do your work in us now. In Jesus' name we pray.